Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post brand studio. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Host, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, January 7th. Today, President Trump looks for ways to build a wall without congressional approval. Driverless taxis make their debut, and winemakers prepare for vineyards on Mars. We can call a national emergency because of the security of our country, absolutely. No, we can do it. I haven't done it. I may do it. I may do it. But we can call a national emergency and build it very quickly. And uh, it's another way of doing it. President Trump is threatening to exercise a major act of executive power. To get his border wall, he's considering declaring a national emergency. And that power has long been used by presidents in moments of national crisis. In an emergency, in a war, and other times of emergency, it may take too long to grant the president powers that may be necessary to act in the defense of the country, to secure the country and, you know, natural disasters in other areas, and that Congress would not have enough time to, you know, have a debate. White House reporter David Nakamura has been covering the shutdown and the president's attempts to strong-arm Congress into approving border wall funding. Now, David is taking a look at Trump's potential new workaround that bypasses congressional approval. So the president would sort of seize these powers, make the case to Congress, and then that would be something the Congress could review going forward. I may declare a national emergency dependent on what's going to happen over the next few days. And this may be a test of the limits of this executive privilege. So under the law that was put into place in 1976, signed by Gerald Ford, the emergency law would basically allow the president to tap statutory powers. So what are the steps to actually putting in place a national emergency? Well, I think you'd basically have to send some sort of declaration to the Congress. And so ones I've looked at, it's not too expansive, but it basically states what the president is asking for and why. Analysts are suggesting that there is some statutory powers that he could potentially tap under a national emergency to reappropriate some money from the Pentagon. This is the big question, you know, that Congress appropriates the funds and then the president carries it out without the spending. And so in this case, if he sort of attempted to use that statutory power under a national emergency, he could then, analysts say, potentially redirect some Pentagon money. And the question would be the Pentagon would declare some other project maybe unnecessary and then reformulate the money to basically construction projects with the Pentagon is allowed to do in certain war times and other emergency periods and then move forward with that. Could he reallocate $5 billion worth of Pentagon money to build the wall? I think this becomes a political question then of the Pentagon is requesting money from Congress, gets it for a specific project, and then says, no, actually, that's not necessary for our national security. We're going to redirect this for what seems to be maybe a political issue for President Trump. That would, again, raise other questions, both from congressional oversight but also public opinion. Is there clarity on whether it is actually legal for the president to declare a national emergency in this situation to basically get this border wall that he's been trying to get Congress to agree to for a long time? You know, it seems like early analysis is that this hasn't really been tested in this arena. I think on the legal challenge, it would come certainly quickly from civil rights and civil libertarian groups that believe the president would be overstepping his constitutional authority by doing this. And I think they would file it in a a federal district court and it would get a hearing before a judge. And either way, I think then it would go to an appeals court. And we've seen a number of the president's 
immigration executive actions be stopped by those courts. You know, then it could potentially set up a hearing by the Supreme Court. And in an emergency situation, it's also possible for the Justice Department to appeal directly to the Supreme Court to weigh in on this. And we know that given the politicization of the Supreme Court right now, that would really set up quite a test right at a time when both sides are starting to gear up for the 2020 election. If Democrats in the House decide that they do want to challenge the president on this, what is the avenue for them to do that? They could uh, potentially try to assert their authority through a vote. They could also have oversight hearings about what kind of money the president is tapping into. When it comes to Pentagon funding, there's been Congress members already saying that if the Pentagon doesn't need this money, why have they asked for it in the first place? And then for the next allocation and the next budget cycle, we would question all the Pentagon's priorities if they're able to sort of cancel projects and redirect the money. How long would a national emergency last? I mean, could he just do this indefinitely till the yeah. end of at least this presidential term to get his wall built? Yeah, since Jimmy Carter signed the first national emergency, which had to do with the Iranian hostage crisis in 1979, there's been 30 national emergencies that continue to this day. They're typically renewed even by successive presidents of different parties. They don't necessarily have this kind of political debate around it. What are the ones that have been around for a long time? I mean, the 9-11 one, the, the Iranian hostage one, the first one ever declared in 1979 to sanction properties around the world owned by Iranian government officials in the wake of the Iranian hostage crisis. That's still in place That's today. That's still in place today. Uh, wow. allowing, allowing, and you know, I think the idea is, you know, we're going to continue to pressure Iran over uh, some of their issues. But there's a lot of concern about how this law, the law was intended to rein in some presidential abuses. President Nixon had declared national emergencies to try to have the government sort of break a, a strike on postal service by having other parts of the government deliver the mail. He also did an economic national emergency to sort of juice the economy right before the 1972 election. And there was a sense after his presidency that he had abused some of these powers. And this would be, again, a way to do it for a limited time period. But these national emergencies continue to be sort of renewed and we just sort of live under it. And there's a lot of concern that the presidents have been continuing to gather more power through this and other channels. And now this could be an interesting test case if President Trump moves forward. President Trump has only declared two national emergencies so far, correct? Yes. But there have been several other instances where he has said that he was going to declare a national emergency or threatened to. Why has he demonstrated this kind of reticence to actually carry out a national emergency? You know, analysts I've talked to about these national emergency powers, you know, they say that this was a law that Congress put in place after the presidency of Richard Nixon and some of the abuses. And they expected this to be sort of a way to rein in presidents by making them make a public case, a limited time period, certain statues that they would try to tap. So I think for President Trump to declare a national emergency, you'd have to make a case to the public about why it is one. And that is the big question. You know, the fact that he sort of talked about my policies have gotten tough on the border, I'm making some progress. But then to say that it, there's really this crisis situation going on sort of cuts against that. And I think the president has been concerned about, you know, making an actual declaration because it certainly opens up all sorts of questions about whether you're abusing authority, whether you're violating constitutional norms, and really sort of looking like you're going around Congress the same way that President Trump and other Republicans accused President Obama of circumventing congressional oversight on issues around immigration, for example, with Dreamers. So while all of this is being considered, the partial shutdown is still happening. There are a lot of federal workers who are still not being paid. And does it seem like this is the only way for the shutdown to come to an end, this kind of workaround? Is this the only way to come down? No, it's not. I think if Trump, you know, depending on what how it plays out, Trump's betting that, you know, he can pressure Democrats and other Republicans to come to some sort of agreement to give him some money for the wall, some sort of partial funding for something that resembles a wall or a fence. I mean, that could potentially be an option. 
But Democrats certainly are digging in. I think there's also a question of how you're going to see financial markets doing in this period. And that could put pressure if those markets continue to struggle and have some volatility under this shutdown. Uh, that could put more pressure on Trump as well. So there are other avenues. But I think the president likes the idea of showing his base that he's taking an extreme and bold step here to really deliver on this core campaign promise. I think advisors, though, and the president himself probably understand that this also has a lot of risk to declare such a, you know, emergency, circumvent, you know, certain public uh, opinion about the wall and congressional concerns, not just from Democrats, but even Republicans and sort of moving forward unilaterally. Thank you so much for being here, David. Sure. Thanks for having me. On Monday afternoon, President Trump announced he'd be making a national address on Tuesday evening on what he called, quote, the humanitarian and national security crisis on our southern border. White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders also said that Trump will travel to the border on Thursday. Whenever given a choice, I choose not to drive in the car. I would always rather be a passenger. This is Jeffrey Fowler. And I'm the tech columnist here at The Post. And my job is to live in a future that hasn't quite arrived for everyone else yet and tell you tales from the edge. And a lot of what Jeff covers centers on technology and how all the different ways we get around are changing. So... When Google first announced that they started test rides of their self-driving cars, known as Waymo, Jeffrey was on it. For many months, I have been reaching out to Waymo once a month saying, hey, can I ride? Hey, can I ride? Hey, can I ride? And they finally gave in and said, fine, Jeff, come to Phoenix and you can take a ride. Waymo has been letting people in Phoenix ride their self-driving taxis for about a year and a half now. It works pretty much like any other taxi app out there. You open up an app that looks kind of like Uber, you tell it where you are and where you want to go, and then one of Waymo's self-driving cabs pulls up to the curb. It looks like a minivan. It is, in fact, a Chrysler Pacifica minivan. It's, you know, the kind of car used by soccer moms and soccer dads all over <laughs> America. On the front, there's these little spinning wheels that are LiDAR sensors. And then it's got a camera on its roof that looks around 360. And then when you get closer to the car, you start noticing some other funny things. For example, you can't put stuff in the back and the trunk of this minivan. There's actually a sticker there that says, sorry, this area is full. You have to put your luggage somewhere else. And that's, of course, because it's filled with computers. The car pulls up. You have to open the door yourself. Hi there. You my Waymo? And when you get inside, there's a little bit of kind of spa music playing, I would say. <laughs> You're kidding. No, I'm serious. They want to put you at ease because they know that riding in a self-driving car is probably a weird new experience for pretty much all human beings. Close doors. Fasten your seatbelt. And you're in the back seat, and when you look up, press start ride. There's a series of buttons, and one of them says start ride. So here we go. You press start ride, and then it says here we go. So full disclaimer: in this car that Jeffrey was riding, and in many of the other ones that Waymo is running right now, there was actually somebody in the driver's seat. This person was told to not touch the steering wheel except in the case of an emergency. And I did watch to see, like, okay, is he really touching the steering wheel? Is this really operating itself? And 
yeah, that wheel was really turning on its own. And the first time you see it, it's a pretty freaky experience. Like, how is it doing that? And again, Waymo has really kind of taken that shock and tried to dull it a little bit with some of the ways that it communicates with you in the car. Like how? Well, there's that spa music at first, although that kind of goes away. The next thing they do is these screens that they've put throughout the car. Sitting here in the passenger seat, the natural question is, what can this thing see? This screen here gives you some clue as it identifies other cars, people, even this roundabout up ahead. And the thing that really struck me is, wow, it can actually see quite a lot. Frankly, more it's taking in probably more data than I could with my own eyes. The challenge then is, does it know what to do with all that data? That's where it gets tricky. What kind of driver was it? Like, how did the car move? And, you know, if you closed your eyes, did it feel like it was just driving in a regular car with a regular taxi driver? Yeah, I would say if you close your eyes, it felt like you were driving in a car with a regular taxi driver who was being extra, extra careful. One of Waymo's early riders that I spoke to named Alex Hoffman had a really good way to put it. It's a driver that's being careful, but not overly cautious to the point where it's scary. It feels like a safe driver, maybe like somebody picking up their mom from the airport and their mom's in the car and they don't want to get criticized by their mom. So that means that we're in a 45 mile zone and it's going exactly 45 miles per hour. This thing follows the letter of the law exactly. It also meant, though, that sometimes it was a little bit painful to be in there (laughs) when we had to take a left turn, for example, out of the uh, headquarters of Waymo in Phoenix. There was a big intersection uh, that we had to cross through, and it just kind of went slowly bit by bit, slowly bit by bit, and I timed it. The whole thing took more than 30 seconds, which is actually a fairly long amount of time to be sitting in the middle of an intersection trying to turn left. Are there other situations where you found that the car kind of struggled to navigate what was going on in the road? It seemed to do pretty well, but some important context here is it's been riding this road around uh, Waymo's offices, and they chose the path that we got to go on for a long time. And that's part of the problem with this technology, right? Humans, the way we learn and are able to drive... We can adapt. You know, once we've made a left turn once, we can figure out how to do a left turn in another intersection we've never been to before. Computers aren't as good at that yet. So that means that just because it knows how to drive certain streets of Phoenix does not mean that it knows how to drive around Washington, D.C. or Chicago or, you know, the side of a mountain in Italy. So in Phoenix, it did a pretty good job. But Phoenix streets are also um, pretty straight, pretty flat. Also, they tend to have sunny days there, not a lot of rain or snow or other things that could get in the way. So I would see it as kind of a sign that we're still in pretty early days. It it seems like the challenge is not only for driverless cars themselves to be safe and to be reliable, but also their ability to navigate in a world where there are still many cars being driven by people that are being driven very differently. Like, did you get a better sense of whether this technology really still works when it's surrounded by people who are driving cars and driving much more erratically than a driverless car would? Unfortunately, no. I only got to take this one trip around Phoenix, and those streets tend to be pretty quiet. So it wasn't like, you know, we were suddenly surrounded by a marching band and a bunch of guys on motorcycles. (laughs) Those are the kinds of tests that that we're going to have to see as this plays out. I should say that it's 
not everybody loves these vehicles. And in fact, in Phoenix, there have been some really interesting news reports about how local residents, when these Waymo uh, minivans pass by, they're sort of attacking them. They're waving guns at them. They are slashing the tires. And some of that is sort of general resentment towards Google. Some of it, I think, is just resentment towards automation and the idea that technology is going to take away people's jobs. Other parts of it might just be like resentment towards the fact that there are so many of these minivans riding around this neighborhood all the time. And as we've discussed, like they can be really slow drivers and kind of annoying. When you think about the two different camps of people thinking about driverless cars. You have, it seems like you and me, people who are relatively open to it, and then people who have a really stark reaction against these cars and say like, heck no, I do not want to give up my car keys. I don't want to be in a driverless car. I plan to be driving myself around for the rest of my life. Do you feel like your experience made you more confident that eventually people will be won over by the convenience of it? Yeah, I think it's going to be a gradual journey. I think we're going to have many years where there are both autonomous vehicles on the road and people driving for themselves because some people just love driving and they associate it with their independence and their being a you know good American. But I came away realizing that when I'm old and can no longer see very well and can't really drive for myself, I'm pretty confident that I'll still be able to get around where I want to go because a computer will do the driving for me. And I'm pretty excited about that future. Well, listen, Jeffrey, thank you so much for doing this. Sure thing. This is just so heartening because I have long maintained that by the time I become an old person, I'm going to like tell my grandchildren about how once upon a time people were allowed to drive cars. And that sounds completely insane. So I feel like I've peered into the future a little bit. And now, one more thing from Moscow reporter Amy Ferris Rotman. Right. Let's do the math. Our service mission here was supposed to last... You probably remember that scene in the movie, The Martian, where an abandoned astronaut played by Matt Damon tries to figure out how to grow potatoes on Mars. I gotta figure out a way to grow three years' worth of food here on a planet where nothing grows. Luckily... I'm a botanist. But surely he'd need something to drink with that. Well, we think that for Georgians, wine is coming naturally. Wine was discovered in Georgia 8,000 years ago. The small country of Georgia, self-described birthplace of wine, is working on solving that drink problem. Nicholas Doborgenidze from the Georgian Space Research Agency. So our ancestors give it to the Earth. So now we have the ambition to give it to the Mars. So why not? A consortium of Georgians, including Natalia Garibashvili, founder of Space Farms, are working on cultivating the best grape to grow on Mars from the hundreds of varieties that they have. There will be a future farm, Space Farms Lab. There will be research some of kinds, spices of grapes. And I think it's very important uh, for Georgia, for science, for world to um, have so cool projects grow grape on Mars. 
They'll grow grapes on floor-to-ceiling pods and then test a variety of soils, including Martian-like dirt. Then they'll try and create Martian-like conditions to grow the grapes. Project manager Anna Lomtadze is bullish because, well, that 8,000-year history. This 8,000 years of history gives us advantage as well. And as you know, the project is called the Ninth Millennium because of that. Any clues yet? Turns out that white grapes are sturdy and more resistant to virus. So if you are hoping for a toast with red wine on the red planet, you might be disappointed. Let's do this once again. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. That's it for Post Reports. We'd love to hear what you think about this episode, so feel free to send a tweet with the hashtag PostReports. And as always, make sure to leave a review on your favorite podcast app. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post brand studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.